Open with me, if you would, in your copy of God's Word to Psalm chapter 2. While Matt is on sabbatical, we're taking a brief break from Isaiah for our Summer in the Psalms series. Can't you tell? Summer in the Psalms. David Wilson pointed out the irony of that to me earlier. He's like, today starts Summer in the Psalms, right? Yeah, yeah, funny. <clears throat> but I'm very excited for our, our passages and also our preachers who are coming to the pulpit just so you're aware of sort of the broad brush strokes of what the intent is as we go through these 13 or 14 weeks of psalms, 13 I think, we'll be hitting major genres of the psalms. So the psalms cross genres in an individual psalm all the time, but broadly we'll be looking at, you know, psalm of lament, psalm of wisdom, of joy, of, of repentance, and things like that. So we understand uh, what the word, what the psalms are trying to do as we read them and how we apply those types of psalms in our lives. And uh, as far as the preachers go, I'll be preaching a little bit over half of the time. Uh, Steve Stanton and I are going to do a preaching swap while he's here and I'm at Waypoint for one Sunday. Stephen will preach a few times and each of our active Air Force chaplains is going to come to the pulpit. So I'm excited for all of that, uh, for us to hear from all of those preachers as well. That's where we're at, where we're going. Hear now God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word, Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. And dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Scripture says of itself that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray for him to add his blessing to it. Our God, as we come to your word, we acknowledge that we are blessed to have it. We ask that you would bless us additionally by the illumination of your Holy Spirit, that you would open our ears and our eyes to glean what you have for us this day, because we ask in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, to our Father in heaven. Amen. Well, if you are a teenager or you ever have been a teenager, you might remember the game King of the Hill. It's a very, very uh, safe and civil game where you are on a pile of dirt or a pile of rocks and there can only be one King of the Hill. So there's, you know, some kid standing at the top and everybody else is trying to rush up and push him off the top of the hill so that he, or, and you know, he's trying to maintain his position on the hill to maintain his status or her status as king of the hill. And we see in this psalm a bit of a 
battle of king of the hill, don't we? And as I read this, I thought about that, and as we see the world sort of assault, figuratively speaking, assault the hill on which the anointed, on which Jesus stands, and really on which the church stands as well, we can become a little fearful as we see the church getting shoved off, right? We can become tempted to be frustrated, we can despair a little bit, but this psalm reminds us, and what I want you to see through this psalm today, is that God frustrates every rival kingdom by resurrecting Jesus as king and providing refuge for all the citizens of his kingdom. God frustrates every rival kingdom by resurrecting Jesus as king and providing refuge for every citizen of his kingdom. So first, what we see in the psalm, I want to, what I want us to look at is all of these rival kingdoms. The nations are raging. Look, <clears throat> nations rage, peoples plot, kings of the earth set themselves. Each of these nouns and the verbs that they do. Nations are raging, people are plotting, kings are setting themselves against, and the rulers take counsel together. This is the collective everybody against Yahweh, against the Lord. That's, as you may remember, when you see the capital L-O-R-D, that is Yahweh, God's covenant name in your scripture. Taking counsel and setting themselves against Yahweh and his anointed, that is Christ. I thought about a football game as I read this first, as I read this first section. I'm not a huge footballer or sports watcher, but I do know the game. I know how it works. And each team the coaches, the players, the fans, it is a collective raging against one another and they are each trying to burst through the constraint that the other team is putting upon them, right? They are collectively together trying to burst through the bonds that the opposing team is placing upon them. That's what the nations are saying or that's what the collective is saying in verse 3. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now, what is this talking about? In what way are the nations, the people, the, the unbelieving world, in what way do they have bonds and cords placed upon them? Because that's, that's what's being said here. The nations, the unbelieving world is saying, let us break free. Now, this is not referring to a physical constraint. I mean, even in Israel's history, they, they barely controlled the land of Canaan for a time. And for the majority of their history, they're subjugated. You know, after the kingdom is divided, they end up getting subjugated by the Assyrians, by the Babylonians, the Medes and the Persians, then the Greeks and the Romans. If anything, Israel and the church has physical constraints placed upon it. It is not placing constraints upon the world. But the world here is saying, let us break free. So what are they talking about? The spiritual constraints that the word of God places upon the world. They are saying, we don't like the chains that God's commands put on us, and we want to break free. Now, isn't that ironic? Jesus says, you know, whoever sins is a slave to sin. You're in chains because of your sin. You need the truth of the word to set you free. 
But the world turns that around and says, no, 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 your commands are burdensome and binding and chains upon us, and we want to break free in our sin. Now, when we see an expression like that here in the Word, doesn't that hit close to home in what we see happening in the world around us? You Christians, you and your Bible-thumping rules are burdensome and constraining to us. What true freedom is, is this freedom to do what we want, to, sit, to do these things that you call sin, but are actually freeing. The world turns God's word on its head. Now, little children, when is a train most free? Is the train free whenever it is free to run off the rails? No. It crashes. It's self-destructive, right? You might have heard this analogy before. The train is most free when it is on the rails that have been provided for it. That's the exact same way it is with the Christian life. It's the exact same way it is with God's commands for us. It is when we are most free, when we are behaving, when we are repenting and believing and living as God has commanded. So take this away. True freedom is freedom from sin, not freedom to sin. True freedom is freedom from sin, not freedom to sin. And God brings that to pass in the Christian's life as, number one, we're initially freed in our salvation from the penalty of sin. God has freed us from the death that the law requires for our breaking of it. We, as we continue to live in our Christian lives, we are continually freed from the power of sin. God ultimately, in our lives, sanctifies us, makes us more Christ-like, reduces the power of sin over us, enabling us to live more righteously. But that process is never complete until death, when we are finally freed from the presence of sin in glory. We are freed from the penalty, freed from the power, freed from the presence. Our freedom is freedom from sin, not freedom to sin. And don't you feel that in your life? Whenever you fall into the same thing that you've done again and again, you feel like the metaphorical chains upon you. You're like, freedom would be freedom to stop this, to, to live the other way. We feel that in our own lives. The other thing to remember as we read this, expect this opposition in varying degrees from every nation until Christ returns. Even this nation in which we live. Remember, who are the nations that are being spoken of here? The nations that are not the church. Our nation, our citizenship truly is in heaven. Yes, I love the USA. I am happy that I was born here. I love the things that this country historically has stood for. But this is not our ultimate nation. And we'll continue to see varying degrees of opposition even within our own nation as it rages. But that's, what, that's our impetus to reach out to them because we know that the nation we are a part of, our citizenship, our kingdom, is the one that they need to be a part of ultimately. Well, we can expect this opposition, but you can expect this opposition to be in vain. What does God say next in verse 4? He who sits at this 
at this statement of the nations to break free from God's commands and law, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. That is, he's got this sort of mocking when you deride somebody, you mock them. Like, are you foolish? You silly? You think that you can break free of the sovereign Lord? He laughs and he holds them in derision. He speaks to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. As the nations fight against God, I, I thought about dads and uncles. You've all done this, at least I've done this, I'm sure you have. With your kids and the nephews who are like between the ages of two and five, whenever they pile upon you and they try to stop you from moving, you know, the game is to see if you can keep moving whenever the kids are piling on top of you. And they can't stop you, right? I mean, usually. (laughs) Usually. The disparity of weight and the disparity of strength is too great. That adult male can just keep moving despite how many kids clamor and climb upon top of him. And that's a measurable disparity in strength and weight. This is an immeasurable disparity in strength and weight. The reality is that the nations raging against God are more like flies trying to stop a man. There is no stopping. There is, there is no effort for God to continue to move forward in his plan. Their plots, their counsel, they're setting themselves against are in vain. And so he responds, God's response to his rivals is wrath and terror. Now, there is an initial sense of this in which God sets his king upon Zion, upon Jerusalem, the holy hill, at the resurrection of Christ. There's also a final sense in which we see Jesus coming as king in his second coming, whenever there is an even fuller, greater revelation of Jesus being the king that God has placed upon the earth. And there is a sense in which when the nations, when the unbelieving world will witness this, that there is terror. I thought about uh, Genesis, whenever Joseph, the interaction between Joseph and his brothers. So you may remember Joseph's brothers, throw him into a pit, sell him into slavery, essentially sell him left for dead. Through a series of events, Joseph becomes VP of Egypt. He's vice Pharaoh, and his brothers are now before him, and he is second only to Pharaoh, but they don't know that it's him. And then he tells his brothers, it's me, your brother Joseph. And as you read the text in Genesis, it's as if you could see the color drain from his brothers' faces. Oh no, this is the brother whom we cast aside, and now he is king over us in a sense. You know, this moment is accompanied with clashes, you know, in, in, in storytelling, in film or in books. Moments like this are accompanied with a clash of thunder or a dun-dun-dun, you know, as the people realize, oh no. And that's what the nations will experience as Jesus comes a second time in wrath and terror. The one that they have figuratively cast aside, he is the true king. The other thing I want us to think about as we look at this section is the irony of God setting his king 
on the holy hill of Jerusalem. There is some irony there. Because think about the first time that Jesus was set on the holy hill of Jerusalem. He was set upon a cross, not as a king, but as a sacrifice to die for all the citizens of the kingdom. Then he is resurrected. Then he is exalted. Then he is, he is spoken of as a reigning king and not just the suffering servant. But even there, as we think about God setting his son upon the holy hill, think about both aspects. Think about the humiliation in which God placed his son, putting him on that cross on the hill of Jerusalem. And then as it is contrasted with his exaltation as he comes the second time. Well, then we see Jesus, or the Son of God, speak in the first person. Now, it's, it's possible that the Son has been the one speaking this whole time, and he simply refers to himself in the third person as his anointed in, in verse 2. But it becomes very explicit here that this is the Son of God, the person of the Son, speaking. Because what is said? I will tell of the decree. Now, here the Son declares... God's salvation and judgment. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Jesus, the son, says what the father told him. That's what's going on here in this verse, is the Son is saying what the Father has told him. First, the Son says, Yahweh, the Father told me, you are my Son, today I have begotten you. Now, what does that mean? You are my Son, today I have begotten you. Today I have birthed you, in a sense. Well, there's a few different senses in which we can talk about the begetting of the Son. First, the Father and the Son have a relationship from eternity past in which the Son is, we, we use the theological term, eternally generated. That from eternity past, the Son is eternally generated from the Father. That they have a co-equal relationship and that the Holy Spirit eternally proceed, proceeds from the Father and Son. So there is an eternal relationship. There's also a sense in which the Son was begat, as Jesus at his physical birth of Mary, that there is a physical birth of Jesus. There's those two senses. I wanted us to understand those to distinguish those from the third sense, which is actually spoken of here. That there is a figurative begetting, birthing of the Son at his resurrection. That when he is exalted as king, there is a sense in which as Albert Barnes, a commentator, puts it. It's as if God is saying, when he is resurrected, today you are my son and I am thy father. That there is a birthing of Christ to his position as king. Uh, I think it was, it was a different commentator talked about how the Roman emperors actually had two birthdays. So the emperor would have a birthday on his actual day in which he was physically born, but then his Second birthday, in a sense, was the day he became emperor. Now, a Roman practice is not necessarily in view here in the Psalms, 
But the point is that this idea exists in the consciousness of people that there is an elevation and a birthing of an individual to the kingship that Jesus experienced. Now, we know this for sure, that it is being spoken of in this sense because it's quoted in Acts 13. What God promised to the fathers, God promised something, what he has promised he has fulfilled by raising Jesus, okay? What God promised was fulfilled by raising Jesus as it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So the the preacher in Acts quotes this verse to say, this shows that Jesus, what was promised was fulfilled in his resurrection because God tells Jesus, today you are my son, today I have begotten you. And in Hebrews, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So the appointment of Christ to the exalted position of king is reflected in the speech, you are my son, today I have begotten you, today I have crowned you, you could say. Now, this declaration, this pronouncement of the Father to the Son, that you are my Son, today I have begotten you. This is a relationship of family, isn't it? Between a father and a son. You've probably heard the expression, blood is thicker than water. What do we mean when we say that? The relationships that people have between their family are typically going to override some other relationship. So, you know, the brother and sister are going to stick closer together in the opposition than two friends. What I want you to realize is that this family relationship between the father and the son, this thick family relationship, is something that you have. You, if you are in Christ, are in the position of, of the Son. It's as if, not as if, God's speech to Christ applies to you as well. And especially even think at someone's conversion when they are spiritually resurrected. Isn't it as if Jesus, as if God is saying to that person, you are my son, you are my child. Today I have begotten you in your resurrection from spiritual death to spiritual life. You have a family, thick, blood-bought relationship with the Father through the Son. You are in the same position as Christ, not as the literal, actual, eternally related to Father, Son of God, but you are in the same family position as Him. As the son recounts more of what the father has said to him, he says in verse 8, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Now look at the different ways in which the nations are acting and treated here in the psalm. In verse 1, they're raging. In verse 8, the father is telling the son, Ask me and I will make the nations your heritage heritage, your treasured children. And then in the next verse, 
The father says, you will break them in pieces with a rod of iron. So there are, there's one way in which the world, in which the nations act, and that is in rage against God. And there are two different ways in which the subset of the nations may be treated based upon their response to God, either as a treasured possession, as a heritage, or as an object of God's wrath. I mean, when God says, you shall dash, dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel, I looked at this. I don't think it's, oh, it's a different one today. That might actually be some sort of ceramic. I'm not sure. But imagine if I were to take a nice piece of iron rebar and walk down in front of the pulpit and just take a baseball bat swing at that pot. I mean, first of all, you'd think, Kurt's gone off the deep end. But secondly, you see the imagery that God is communicating just as easy and as destructive and as scattering as it would be for me to take a rod of iron and swing through that. That is one, that is one result of a subset of the nations who do not repent and believe in Jesus. But notice God makes his enemies his heritage in verse 8, that other subset that come to Christ, that repent and believe in him. He says, I will make the nations your heritage and the earth, ends of earth, your possession. I have a treasured possession. It's this watch. It is my father-in-law's, my late father-in-law's watch. It's a, it's a scratched up Casio watch that probably cost $10 from Walmart at some point. Incredibly cheap and uh, incredibly scratched up. But it is a treasured possession for me. You may have something similar. The nations are the earth. As valuable as this is, you know, it's, it's fleeting. It will go away at one day. But the earth is the son's treasured possession. Magnify the treasuring of any small item like this. Magnify it by the love of God. And that is the treasuring of the possession of the earth. And more than just the objects and the physical thing of the earth, but it's the people. I will make the nations your heritage. Think of your own children, the heritage that they are, the love that you have for them, how deep that is. That's the deep, deep love that Christ has for the nations, for people who were once his enemy. He makes them his blood-bought children, putting them in the relationship of family. Do you see the magnitude of the love of God here, that he takes these enemies who are raging and makes them the son's heritage and the earth his possession? This is how God feels about you who were once his enemy, his treasured heritage and the earth, his possession. Well, we see that God delights to save his enemies. And shouldn't we delight in the same things that God delights in? When we see the nations that are raging, when we see the ungodly realize their position before God and that there is not only judgment from God, but there is an offer of salvation. And it's actually part of the purpose of God in handing them over to their sin that they would be shown mercy. 
part of their raging is God's intent to bring them to salvation. He says in Romans, Romans 11, God has consigned all to disobedience. That is, God has delivered all these people over to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. God has handed everyone over to disobedience that they would see in their self-destructed, going-off-the-rails behavior the reality of salvation in Christ. He has consigned all to disobedience that he would have mercy on all. And then Paul exclaims, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways. Well, as the psalmist transitions into the last section, we go from the indicative to the imperative. The indicative are just the facts. Uh, These are statement of fact. This is what the nations are doing. This is what the Son has said. This is what this is how God is acting. Those are the indicatives. Now we've we've had some application and commands as we've moved forward even through the indicatives, but now notice the speech transitions in the psalm intentionally to the imperative. To do this. Because of what has preceded, now, therefore, verse 10, O kings. Be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve these injunctions, these commands. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. Notice all those things are now commands that are given to the audience, spoken to the nations, and to the church that we are supposed to respond with. In light of all the preceding, here's the authoritative order. Well, what's first said is to kings and rulers, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. You know, you've set yourself against God. God's declared what the end is, what your end is, who set yourselves against him. Be wise and warned. This doesn't just apply to kings and rulers. It applies to everyone. But one thing that one commentator noted, it might have been, it was Benson or Barnes, the influence that kings and rulers have over the nations. That as kings and rulers turn their hearts toward him, that the after effect will be people of a nation. And, and don't, I mean, don't we see that in the microcosm of our church? As hearts either turn away from God, it results in leading people astray, or as leaders' hearts turn toward God, it results in those who follow them being turned toward God. And so as we see the injunction here to kings and rulers, I want you, especially the people who are in this room, who are or have been in positions of authority and leadership and rulership, you could say, you who have employees or students or just people over whom you exert influence, recognize that the way in which you walk will have an effect and God will use it in the lives of your subordinates. Recognize and remember that. Your conflict, not just to people who are in the workplace, but you who are in a household, you who are parents, you who are older brothers or sisters, the people under your influence. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> point to your brother. You hear that? <laughs> you who have influence over someone else will affect their walk. God will use it. 
Serve Yahweh, serve the Lord with fear, verse 11, and rejoice with trembling. Notice this conjoining of fear and joy that are together in this verse. Rejoice with trembling, serve with fear. There is a dual aspect to our rejoicing and serving the Lord that we recognize his character that's expressed in this psalm, that he has great power and fury And he has saved us from that fury. And so as we serve and rejoice in him, we simultaneously still remember his awesome power. Spurgeon said it this way, Fear without joy is torment. Think if you were simply afraid of someone, afraid of their wrath and fury. Fear without joy would be simply tormenting. But we have joy with our fear because God has spared us from his fury. And conversely, Spurgeon says, joy, simple joy, without holy fear is presumptuous. So fear without joy is torment. Joy without holy fear would be presumption. We have a God who is a consuming fire, but he has consumed Christ in our stead. And that is why we rejoice with holy fear. Kiss the son, verse 12. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. As we see this, you know, the behavior of royalty, that, you know, the kiss on a hand or the kiss on a cheek would be a token of submission and affection toward that sovereign. And so as we see both of these aspects spoken of our command to do this toward Christ, I want us to emphasize both of those aspects. So, Jesus, the Son of God, is not simply a friend and a brother. Yes, he is. He truly is. But in this psalm, notice what is emphasized, his sovereign kingship. We bow a knee before Christ and submit to him in that sense. So we recognize that emphasis in this psalm. And also, the affection that there is. So I think oftentimes, especially in our Presbyterian circles, as we are very focused on intellectual accuracy and theology, which is a very good thing, we can default into simply thinking of Christ as the legal advocate. The legal advocate who acted on our behalf, who suffered on our behalf, and it is sterile. But there is an affection that we should have for Christ. So in our submission, think about the relationship between a parent and child. That there is a, uh, that there is a family relationship there, but there is a respect and an honor. And in our affection, think about the relationship between spouses Think about the love that there is to please one another. We don't simply have a sterile relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We have an affectionate relationship. And as I reflected on this, I thought, when was the last time I said, my Lord and King Jesus, I love you. I adore you. 
I want to please you even more than I want to please my spouse. This is the affection that we can have for him, that we should have for him. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You could almost say that there is an unwritten because there. Kiss the sun, you know, hide yourself in him because blessed are all who take refuge in him. You are truly blessed by being in Christ. Now, as I read Spurgeon here, uh, again, he's a quotable guy. You know, as I thought about this, you might think, well, I'm blessed in Christ. The word says that to me, but I really don't feel like it. I really don't. I feel like I am hanging on by a thread. And I I thought about that, and then I read Spurgeon actually on this, and he says this, Our faith may be as slender as a spider's thread, but if it be real, we are in our measure blessed. You may not feel blessed, but you are. Your faith may be as slender as a spider's thread, but if that connection between you and the Father through the Son, by the Spirit, if that is real, you are, we are in our measure blessed. We may therefore close the psalm with the prayer of the apostles, Lord, increase our faith, Spurgeon says. The point here is this. Trust the word first, not how you feel. You might feel not blessed, but trust the word before your feelings and let the word then inform your feelings. We should feel something, but trust the word first because it says, Blessed are you who take refuge in him. Well, as we come to the conclusion of the psalm, and as I came to the conclusion of it, I thought about searching the internet in all of its vast wisdom for benevolent rulers of history. I wanted to see uh, what people would publish out there as far as who kind rulers were. And so I found, you know, a website that was titled Benevolent Rulers of History. Uh, another one, 10 dictators throughout history who were surprisingly good. And the types of examples of these rulers that are on these lists, you know, a list of a half dozen or a list of 10 dictators, you know, it's guys like Suleiman I, ruled in the 1500s. He gave free education for children. You know, that's like a shining spot for a kind ruler. But, of course, blood is all over his hands and his kingdom as he fought and expanded the Ottoman Empire. Another ruler who made the list was Augustus of Rome, ruled from 27 B.C. to 14 A.D. He was known especially for the the Pax Romana, the, the Roman peace, the degree of civility and peacefulness that there was between Rome and its neighbors in the empire at the time? Well, that's because Rome had crushed everybody. And Augustus didn't stop. He still continued to expand and maintain the empire in bloody warfare. This is the best examples that the internet can give in history. Are you surprised that King Jesus didn't make any of the lists? 
No, not surprised. But isn't that the reality? That we have the most benevolent, kind ruler in history. A king who shed no innocent blood. There was nothing, there was no innocent blood on his hands. Rather, he had his innocent blood shed for the citizens of his kingdom. No other king did that. No other emperor did that. No other ruler did that. King Jesus did that when he was on the holy hill the first time he was set there. And he is coming again the second time as our king in whom we take refuge. Kiss him with submission and affection. Let's pray. Our God, we do thank you for this word, that we have the reliability of your scriptures. We have the end written from the beginning. We see the nation's rage. We see the opposition to your church, but we know that it is in vain. Lord, often we don't feel blessed. But though our faith be as a spider's thread, would you increase our faith? Would you help us to feel the refuge and blessedness that we have in you? And Lord, would you stir up our affections, stir up our hearts to not only submit to you as our king, but also to love you as our sovereign who gave himself for us. And as we look at the nations around us, would you give us an affectionate heart for them, that as you desire to see them become your heritage by repentance and faith, would we desire the same? Because we ask in Jesus' name, amen.